Leading experts in the field of interventional radiology got together at the Society of Interventional Radiology's 2016 annual scientific meeting in Vancouver. They talked about many issues, and one of the issues they talked about, which was fascinating, was talking about amputation pain and how to deal with that lingering pain. The whole phenomenon of phantom limb pain, how to deal with it, is going to be discussed today on Primary Care Today with our guest, J. David Prologo. He is a physician at the Emory University School of Medicine in Atlanta. First of all, Dr. Prologo, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. My first question, I mean, before we even get into the treatment, let's talk a little bit about phantom limb pain. I know for me as a family doc, I, I find that intriguing and fascinating because it's such a strange concept. Indeed it is. It's an interesting concept, and there are some parallels that I can tell you about. The underlying pathophysiology of phantom limb pain is a subject of some debate, and there are treatments from stem to stern, really, treatments aimed at modifying cortical organization, treatments aimed at psychological intervention, spinal cord intervention, all the way out to the peripheral nerve. The consensus is that it's a combination, like most things, of input from all of those places I mentioned, as well as autonomic nervous system. And so what ultimately happens is that these various inputs, including the peripheral nerve, including the autonomic nervous system and cortical reorganization, result in perception of pain or other sensation in the amputated limb. So when you look at that and, you know, you talk to patients, for instance, I'm sure you deal with patients who have it, how do you explain it to them? Uh, <laughs> uh, that's a good question. I, I've not been asked that before. That's a great question. Actually, the way I explain it to them is that if you can imagine your nerve as sort of a member of your family, your peripheral nerve that was amputated, had a traumatic event, and if that's sort of the index person, then you can imagine that the autonomic nervous system are your aunts and uncles that try to weigh in and, and put their input into the situation, into what happened, try to figure it out. The cortex then are your parents who are trying to make sense of all of this and then make the right decision based on all these variable inputs. And then the index person is the peripheral nerve. So if you can imagine all this noise and static that's caused after the incident event, then you can imagine there are several places where we can intervene to try and calm the situation down. In our case, in interventional radiology, we have access to the peripheral nerve. So we have access to the index person who, who underwent the event or had the trauma. If we can calm that person down, if we can calm that peripheral nerve down, uh, sometimes that can be all you need to calm the whole system down. But just like families, sometimes you'll have some leftover aunts and uncles or leftover input from the parents that... Uh, lingers, but for the most part, you can have a blanket effect that results in, in decreased symptoms. That's a really neat way of looking at it. I'm Dr. Brian McDonough, your host. You're listening to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. And now we're going to talk a little bit, Dr. Prologo, about the work you've done. Essentially, what you presented was cryoablation and showing that it had promise in relieving phantom limb pain you and other researchers found that applying cryoablation therapy, which uses cold blasts targeted at specific nerve sites, can reduce phantom limb pain for amputees. And, and, and that's really an interesting concept because, again, even though we talk about how you explained it, you're talking about a phantom pain with a treatment. It is very, very almost mystical when you think about it. 
Indeed, and I can share with you a bit of the thought process which resulted in this intervention. Early on, we as interventional radiologists were performing cryoablation for the treatment of painful osseous metastatic disease. We were ablating the neoplasm periosteal interface for pain relief in cancer patients. And from there, uh, some sad cases would emerge and we'd have referrals asking us if we could cryoablate a nerve for a patient who was willing to sacrifice motor function for pain relief. From those sad cases came the idea of cryoablating nerves in other situations. The most interesting one, and the one that's relevant here, was a sexual disorder called premature ejaculation. We had the same sort of theory at that time, where this disorder was due either to psychological things, cortical disorganization, or peripheral nerve hypersensitivity. And in any case, we were able to cryoablate the peripheral nerve, in that case the dorsal penile nerve on one side, and improve the patient's symptoms. So given that study and those results and the similarities to the underlying theory for phantom limb pain, we thought it'd be reasonable to cryoblate the peripheral nerve in this new setting and hopefully end up with positive results. I mean, it's fascinating how you get to this point. Now, in your particular field of interest, when did you become personally interested in cryoablation and the potential use of it? So, and during my fellowship, I had a prolific and what I would say brilliant fellowship director who was very active about expanding our skill set for image-guided intervention to new applications. One of them was pain management. And so we learned to access nerves and to access muscles that were traditionally difficult to manage, traditionally difficult to access, and certainly sometimes impossible in the absence of image guidance. At the same time, thermal ablation techniques, such as cryoablation, microwave ablation, radiofrequency ablation, were evolving in the setting of primary and secondary neoplastic ablation. Those two things started to come together for me during the palliative cryoablation phase that I described earlier. Tell me the experience of dealing with a patient who has phantom limb pain. First of all, from how you talk to them and how they explain it before you even begin the treatment. So if somebody comes in, they're thinking of having this treatment with you, how do they describe it and and, and what's their sense of it? So it's, it's an interesting thing to talk with a phantom limb patient for multiple reasons. Probably... The most interesting part for me, almost the most addicting part, is that these patients aren't sure if they themselves are crazy or if they themselves have a real somatic peripheral disorder. And so being able to tell them that I think the source of your discomfort, the source of your perception is coming from a real thing that I can identify on a CT scan is satisfying for them and for me. And to then proceed with a diagnostic injection, which we do before any cryoablation, and hear the patient say things to us like, I felt that foot for five years. This is the first time I haven't felt that leg in 10 years. And, and, and then to proceed with a cryoablation for a longer-term result. Uh, we've been quite lucky to be a part of this. You're listening to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Brian McDonough. I'm with J. David Prologo. He's a physician. He works at Emory University. We're talking about phantom limb pain and a fascinating approach to dealing with it. What sort of treatments were around there before? Did we, did we have any way to approach it before this? 
So the treatments prior to cryoablation were largely supertentorial, if you will, mirror therapy aimed at reorganizing the patient's sensitized central nervous system by having the patient imagine moving the amputated limb while looking in a mirror. That was the most effective therapy available prior to our intervention, but there were others. There were anti-anxiety medications and, of course, dreaded pain medications. I say dreaded because oftentimes they lead to, to untoward effects and don't always help the patient with their symptoms. And then moving down the spinal cord, there were trials of spinal cord stimulation, dorsal root ganglion stimulation, all the way out to the peripheral nerve and surgical resection. How do you explain, and we talked a little bit about you explained phantom limb pain, but how do you explain the weird way, I guess for lack of a better term, that nerves react when they're damaged? So that's something that's been well characterized in benchtop research. And that is that the neuroma forms in an attempt to both regenerate and heal following the transection, be it traumatic or surgical or otherwise. And that process results in an altered microenvironment that leads to abnormal action potential. So we know the nerve is firing in an amputee who's feeling this phantom limb pain. You know, this is something, I mean, granted, I mean, I've been doing this for a lot of years. I'm a doctor. I've read the research. I mean, it's really an interesting and, and kind of perplexing concept. It makes a lot of sense, and yet you still go, well, if something's not there, how can you feel it? Right, right. Because it's kind of the way we're, we're wired, so to speak. Sure, sure, and no doubt about it. And when I talk to the patient, I explain to them that prior to the amputation, the nerves supplying the foot or, or the, the shin that they feel now we're all converging on a common highway, in most cases, in the lower extremity, the sciatic nerve, and the upper extremity, the brachial plexus, all converging onto that common highway to the spinal cord and then the brain. So even though the destination is gone, there are still signals traveling up that common highway that are abnormal. And, and we're able, in the case of an amputation, to sacrifice the nerve carrying mixed sensory and, no, and motor neurons because the patient no longer needs their motor function. So a patient with a a, a pain in a limb that's still present presents a much more difficult situation for us to handle because it's undesirable to cryoblate the nerve-carrying sensory and motor. But in this case, that's not an issue. You're obviously somebody who thinks out of the box. You wouldn't be doing what you did (laughs) if you don't think outside the box. What's the next step? Like what what sort of pain or neurologic process that is confusing physicians at this point are you looking at as your next target? What are, what are we know? What's the so, next? That's really a great question. I appreciate you asking it. But the, the answer is sort of twofold. The, the first one is that the next step is to translate this to a larger trial. The next step is for us to disseminate this intervention to all of the people walking, I'm sorry, walking around, sort of existing with phantom limb pain which is a number that approximates at least 1 million right now. And so we've got to disseminate the, the trial and then potentially the therapy after that. So, so that's the next big step, logistically speaking. But as far as new applications go, since we've been cryoablating nerves, multiple applications have emerged. And trigeminal neuralgia is one, a place where now with CT guidance, we can place a probe pulse radio frequency probe in this case, 
to modulate the nerve function and give patients longer-term relief. Pudendal neuralgia is a big one. This is a well-known and well-characterized pelvic pain syndrome for which patients had very limited treatment options for a long time. Now, with image guidance and the marriage of evolved ablative technologies, we can cryoablate the pudendal nerve for these patients and offer them relief. So there are lots of new applications that we're looking forward to applying these image-guided interventions to treat. One of the things, Doctor, we see in our practices that we deal with all the time and it's very frustrating is the fibromyalgia and, and the things associated with fibromyalgia. Any hope there or any thoughts you have for that particular condition? So fibromyalgia and related disorders, reflex dystrophy, reflex sympathetic dystrophy, and also diabetic neuropathy are all sort of in the same family. And the therapies that we can see from interventional radiology, interventional pain management on the horizon are ganglion modification. For example, a patient with fibromyalgia or RSD has been shown to get benefit from interventions of the stellate ganglion. Stellate ganglion is a dangerous place to access without image guidance. With CT, it's a relatively easy place for us to put either a 22-gauge needle to deliver medications or the same size pulse radio frequency probe to change the signals in that ganglion and potentially help these patients. Those are great examples. Dr. Prologo, I want to thank you for joining us. We, believe it or not, it's been fascinating. We, we're, we're out of time, but I want to thank you for joining us and taking the time to share your research and also your perspective. It's very interesting, and I think for physicians listening, it's fascinating. Well, thank you, and thank you for doing the show. This is Dr. Brian McDonough. If you missed any of this discussion, please visit ReachMD.com slash Primary Care Today. You can download the podcast. You can learn more on this series. Thank you very much for listening.